morning from Psalm 32, Psalm 32, verses 1 to 7. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving grace toward us. Thank you for the ministry, God, that you have to us through your spirit, who leads us in truth, who convicts us of ungodliness, and who restores us, Lord, as we come to you in confession of our sin and looking to you through the blood of Christ for cleansing. Thank you for all that you are to us and have done for us in Jesus and all that you do every moment of our lives. We're here to praise you, God. I pray that our hearts would be directed to you and that you would receive the worship and honor that you are worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, last week we were looking at chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, which is the infamous chapter of David's adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. So not a very happy chapter, adultery and murder. So today we're moving right along to the thrilling subjects of conviction and confession. Actually, chapter 12 is a happy chapter, because it does speak of the restoration that God gives to us, as we know, through Christ and his blood shed for us. This chapter falls pretty naturally along the lines of confrontation, conviction, confession, cleansing, and consequences. David, we are told the last part of chapter 11, has had um, the baby born through his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba um, has been born. We don't even know the name of this baby, and so that leads some to believe that this child lived a very short time, because normally in the Hebrew society, the babies were not um, named until their eighth day, baby boys, when they were circumcised. And there's no name mentioned for this baby boy, so he may have, in fact, only been a week old when the Lord um, took him. Normally... Those of us that have children would attest to this, that, that the birth of a child is not only a joyous time, but it's a very spiritual time, especially for a young couple that may be not even walking with God. To see that first baby born um, really brings a sense of the miraculous and that God has done something here. It's often a very spiritual time 
in the life of a young couple. And, and, and many young couples begin to seek the Lord for the first time because they, they recognize that they cannot take credit for this miraculous life that's been given to them, the life of this child. I can't imagine David not being able to rejoice with the birth of this child. He has been sitting on his sin, covering it, refusing to acknowledge it for the entire pregnancy of Bathsheba. And now that the baby is there, he knows the baby is a living reminder for his whole life of David's sin. This is not the happy time, joyful time that it should have been for David. I imagine that it was the same for Bathsheba. She probably, too, is not able to fully rejoice as she knows in her heart God would have had for her. And again, I think there's reason to believe this was her first child and that she had not had a child by her, her husband Uriah. And now this child as a product of her sin. And so it would have been with mixed emotions on the one hand, recognizing God's grace to give them this baby. But on the other, recognizing that they are hiding their sin. So it, David was, we know from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, I'm very thankful for those two Psalms because they tell us that David had been living in agony during this whole time. His bones rotting within him. In fact, let's just look at those again back in chapter 32 of Psalms. He says in verse 3, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. We wouldn't know that from 2 Samuel. My body wasted away. I was groaning all the day long. Patsy always knows when something's wrong with me because I, I groan. Usually it's because I think of something I said that was particularly stupid, and I'm thinking, and, I, and it comes to mind, and again, I just go, oh, out loud. No conversation. We're just driving down the road, and oh, Patsy goes, okay, what are you thinking about? You know, what dumb thing did you say that came to mind? And um, David spent nine months groaning. No psalms being written during this time. Day and night, God's hand was heavy on him. His strength was drained away. And then in Psalm 52, he says much of the same thing, even more descriptive. Psalm 51, I'm sorry. And he says... Many, many things here in this psalm, but he says in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. There's his confession. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part that will make me know wisdom. And then he gets to how he's been feeling during this time. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Make me to hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation uh, and sustain me with a willing spirit. All these things are speaking to what David is feeling. He's feeling unclean. He's feeling depressed. He's, he has no joy. He, he, he has no steadfastness of spirit. He recognizes that, that he is not living in fellowship with God. He's not experiencing the enabling of God's spirit in his life. And he wants the joy that he's lost. This has been a miserable nine months in David's life. David's going to suffer a lot of things in his life. He's suffered for 10 years of running from Saul. He's going to suffer for the next 10 years in many respects, um, at least in part because of the consequences of this sin. But I think if David were here today, he would say the greatest suffering he ever suffered was that internal suffering of guilt, of broken fellowship with God. We know that Jesus, the greatest suffering that he suffered, was not the beating he took. It was not the nails that pierced his hands and feet. The greatest suffering was the separation, the broken fellowship between himself and the Father. And I think when we are honest about our own relationship with God, there's no greater pain, no greater agony of heart and soul and spirit than not being right with God. It never leaves you alone. I've been told that you can have leprosy and it doesn't even hurt you. You feel no pain. It just deadens. So to feel pain is a good thing. And though David is wasting away physically, he feels the pain of his sin and the pain of broken fellowship. And there's hope for somebody that is feeling pain. So at the right time, after nine months of letting David stew in his agony, God sends a man, Nathan the prophet. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, then, after the child is born, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, this section is the confrontation, confronting a man who is not acknowledging his sin, and not just any man, but the king. We have other stories of other kings, especially in 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, where confrontation of a king did not go very well. Men ended up in prison. Some ended up tortured because they dared to confront the king. We know John the Baptist confronted a king and cost him his life. Confrontation is risky business. Most of us don't like it. I heard a guy say that he knew he worked under a pastor who was a linebacker in football before he became a pastor. And he just liked contact. He liked confrontation. And so if somebody called him up and yelled at him and hung up, he'd ring them back and yell at them and hang up on them. 
contact sports. He loved it. Most of us aren't wired that way, thankfully. (laughs) So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan did not go on his own. We don't know if anybody else had been trying to speak to David during this time. It would seem probably not. It's hard to speak to people in power. And Nathan went only when God told him to go. And it was the right time. And we aren't told whether God told Nathan to come up with this little scenario here that he did. I kind of think that he just sought God and said, Okay, God, I get the message. Go to David. What am I supposed to say to the man? And I think the Lord led him into this But it was Nathan just sitting and praying and seeking God for how to do this. And Nathan came up with this scenario. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. I think that's pretty sad, personally, but that's it's another story. I'm not an animal in the house kind of person. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And it's like Nathan's not even finishing the story, because you're thinking... What's next? And David jumps in. David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives. So David's not lost acknowledgement of God. As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan said to David, the most powerful four one-syllable words maybe ever spoken, you are the man. I don't know how Nathan said that. Maybe he was yelling, he had his finger pointing at him, you're the man! Maybe with tears running down his face. He said, David, you are the man. As I have to think, I know in my flesh I'd be yelling at him and saying, you're the man. But this is not a man who's functioning by the flesh, but by the spirit. God said, famous preacher one time said, you have no right to preach on hell unless it makes you cry doing so. Because hell doesn't cause God to rejoice. And what pains God should pain us. And so I am inclined to think that Nathan in his love for God and his love for David, when he came to that critical point of saying, you're the man, 
It was with tears in his eyes. You are the man. And then he levels what God says about what he's done. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. So it's not me talking, David. This is God. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. I believe that what God is saying here, one is, again, this cultural thing that was going on, that when a king died, he got everything that represented the previous king's power and wealth, including the man's wives. So all the wives of Saul became the wives of David. It didn't mean that he had sexual relationships with them. It just meant that they now belonged to him. And they are not free to marry anybody else because they belong to David. They represented Saul's power. So I think that what God is saying is, David, I have given you so much power. And you abused the power. You abused the authority I gave you and took another man's wife. I would have given you more power. But I didn't give you this power for you to use it for yourself. To hurt other people. To take advantage of other people. To fulfill your own lust. In verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? This is evil. And remember in chapter 52 of Psalms, I have done evil. That's one of the marks of confession, is that we agree exactly with what God has said. And David didn't say, I made a mistake. God said, this is evil. And David says, I have done evil in your sight. It's coming to the truth. Despising God's word on any level is evil in the sight of God. On any and every level. We know what God says. And we say, I'm going to do something else. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Yeah, you didn't do it yourself, but you did it. Now, therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Despising God's word is despising God himself. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from your eyes and give them to your companion and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. David's son Absalom will actually do this. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, 
the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. So let me just step through this a little bit here. On the confrontation again, it was the it was a man sent by God. The right man. God's man. At the right time. Nathan didn't decide this God did with the right words. This is supernatural. To see in scripture particularly in the New Testament, is filled with admonitions to turn the sinner back and save a soul from death. Many admonitions along that line in the New Testament. But if we go in our own strength, we underestimate what we're dealing with. We cannot cure a spiritual problem with the flesh. It takes the Spirit of God to deal with a spiritual problem. And we cannot spend too much time praying because God's Spirit has got to do this. Some of us move too quickly. Some of us move too slowly. But God is always on time. And sometimes He will get on a person fast. And other times He's going to give it years. And all we can do is wait. And not be too eager to be the one who sent. Who would want to sign up for this job? The right time. The right person. Nathan was a man that David respected. If the person you're going to confront has no respect for you, you're probably not the right person. You're just more salt in the wound. And the right word. Proverbs says, a timely word are like apples of gold in settings of silver. They're beautiful. You look back and go, that was from God. The conviction that comes to David had been going on, as we note, from Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, way before Nathan got there. When God convicts, it is not to hurt us. It is to make us right with God and to restore fellowship with Him. It is to minister to us. It is an actual ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 16 Jesus says, I will send the helper to you. It is to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is one of those underestimated and undervalued ministries of the Spirit of God. But conviction is a gift from God. We all need it. And it could not happen True conviction cannot happen apart from the Spirit of God. We can't bring this about. When that true conviction comes, there is no guarantee that people are going to respond as David did. That doesn't mean that we have not been God's tool. I think of 
Acts chapter 7, when Stephen gave that long speech. And at the end of the speech, he didn't say, you are the man or you are the men, but he might as well have because he said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Who wants to hear that message? And it says, they were convicted. That word's not used, but I believe that's what's being described. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they said, we have sinned. No. They were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. And then it says, and they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. They went mad. Not everybody will respond to the convicting work of God the way David did. Some will hate and want to kill the messenger. But God brings conviction because he loves us. I used to so look forward every year before I came on staff at His Hill to coming home, whether it was from Bible college or seminary, and attending the Thanksgiving conference at His Hill, because Major Thomas would be speaking every year. And it just seemed, no matter what he preached on, no matter how well I thought I was doing spiritually, it was a, it was a realignment. It's like going to a chiropractor, you know, and getting every bone cracked. And I felt like that every year sitting under that man's ministry because he was so central to Jesus. And when I'd hear him preach, I'd realize I'd been moving away from Jesus. And it was a realignment. It was convicting. Sometimes it was just sobering. Other times it was painful. But it was the ministry of God's spirit. And again, when God convicts, it isn't to condemn us but is to correct us, to bring us back to Christ and to that central place of fellowship with him. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's not looking to crush us, to condemn us. Jesus says that he does not break off the bruised reed. He does not put out the smoldering wick. And when we come to him in brokenness, in contrition of heart, he loves it. And he takes us, he heals us, he cleanses us, he forgives us. So God says to David through Nathan, The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. That's so easy to read. And you think it must have been easy for God to say that. But God cannot do that. Take away a person's sin. Apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And when God said to David in 1000 A.D., I'm sorry, B.C., 
in 1000 BC, the Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. It was based upon what Jesus Christ would do a thousand years in the future. There is only one ground for forgiveness, and it is not the love of God. It is not the mercy of God. It is not the grace of God. It is the justice of God being satisfied. And God's justice is satisfied only through the blood of Jesus Christ. So what seems like such an easy thing, you think, why doesn't God just say it more? Why didn't he just forgive everybody? Jesus had to die. And that offering of Christ on our behalf must be received. I appreciate Chambers on this. I may have quoted him at some time in the past, Oswald Chambers. He says, the great miracle of the grace of God is that he forgives sin. And it is in the death of Jesus Christ alone that enables the divine nature to forgive and to remain true to itself in doing so. It is shallow nonsense to say that God forgives us because he is love. And when we have been convicted of sin, we will never say this again. The only ground on which God can forgive me is through the cross of my Lord. The only ground on which God can forgive us is the tremendous tragedy of the cross of Christ. To put forgiveness on any other ground is unconscious blasphemy. The only ground on which God can forgive sin and reinstate us in his favor is through the cross of Christ and in no other way. Forgiveness which is so easy for us to accept cost the agony of Calvary. Forgiveness is the divine miracle of grace. It cost God the cross of Jesus Christ before he could forgive sin and remain a holy God. Amen and amen. And the amazing thing here, God doesn't hold this over David. Yes, I'll forgive you, but do you have any idea what it costs me to forgive you? That's what we do. And with no mention to, his, to the sacrifice to himself, God simply says, on the basis of, in response to your confession, I forgive you. But the forgiveness is on the basis of Christ shed blood. That's why 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Righteous because of the shed blood of Christ. Because David's sin is forgiven, he will not die. It might not be overstating it to say, because David's sin is forgiven... He cannot die. He cannot be put to death for murder and adultery, which was what the law prescribed. He cannot be put to death for it if, in fact, his sin has been removed. And that's what it says. The Lord has taken away your sin. Therefore, you won't die. So David isn't executed. David is not put to death because there is no sin. It's been removed. 
Wow. God's not saying it is no longer an historical fact. We still have it in our Bibles. And I guess we'll be reading about it for all of eternity. I'm sorry, David. It happened as a fact in history. But God's saying, in terms of the atonement and what Christ has accomplished for us, it has been removed. And we cannot be put to death for sin that has been removed. Jesus took that payment. What David knew about that, I think he knew more about it than what we give him credit for personally, even though he did not know the name Jesus. But we know the basis for forgiveness is the death of Jesus Christ, and we will never as Christians get what we deserve. Never. We will be disciplined. We will reap what we've sown in some measure in this life, but we will never get what we deserve. We deserve an eternity of separation from God and conscious torment. And it won't happen because the sin has been taken away through the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiven people still experience consequences to their sin. Sin that has been taken away can still have consequences. That's a hard thing for us to understand. As we think, if God's forgiven us, there should be no consequences. David is forgiven. The sin has been removed. He does not die. However, verse 14, because by this deed you have given occasion of the enemies to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall die. I believe that the simplest way to understand this is what A.W. Tozer used to call the law of the harvest. We reap what we sow. We should not understand it as David is getting what he deserves. He is not. He deserves hell. It is not the baby dying in place of David. It is not. David doesn't die. And the, da- and the baby is not dying as a substitute for David. How can that be? God just said, I've taken away your sin. You shall not die. So there's no need for a substitute. Jesus is the substitute for David, not this baby. We have to understand that because we get so mixed up on this. And we, we attribute to God what is not true of him. God does not kill innocent babies because of or instead of the parents. It doesn't happen. You and I wouldn't do that, and neither does God. It really gets me fired up. And you've heard, those of you that have been here for a long time, one of the reasons it's so dear to me is because when our oldest son, Nathan, at 11 months old, contracted spinal meningitis and we thought he was going to die, the doctors put his hand on my shoulder and said, you're not getting this, Charlie. Your son may die. And then I started getting it. He spent 10 days 
in the pediatric intensive care in San Antonio, and I spent much of that time on my face saying, God, what have I done? And confessing, trying to think of, and not that I am without sin, I am not, but I'm trying to think, what is the sin that has caused my baby to be this close to death and they might die? So I know our hearts are that when, that God is the kind of God who will kill an innocent child because of the sins of the parent. My heart's that way. And most of us read this passage and say, that's what happened to David. We read it wrongly. There is a difference, and I don't think it's splitting hairs. It is a grand canyon apart. A difference between dying because of someone's sin and dying in place of someone with their sin. This is not a baby dying instead of David. This is a baby dying because of David. Big difference. There's only been one person in human history that God has ever had die instead of another. Jesus Christ. And he did it willingly. Otherwise, it would have been an injustice. But there have been many people who have died because of the sins of others. Parent can make a choice to young mom to be addicted to heroin and very likely give birth to a baby addicted to heroin. And very likely that baby will not survive. God did not kill that baby instead of the mother. But that baby did die because of the sins of the mother. It is a huge difference. We, babies do not die in place of or as substitutes for the sins of a parent. Ezekiel is very clear. God will not kill a child in place of the parent. Could not be clear. David is fully restored relationally to his Lord. The joy of God's salvation returns to him. He sings again and probably sang from a depth of heart and experience and gratitude that he had never known before. But he still experienced consequences. We're going to see that, that David's family from this point on is a shambles. Personally, I am very reluctant to attribute the choices of David's sons to this sin. We can beat ourselves up too much. Children make their choices. Adult children are responsible for the choices they make. We have to understand that in Christ Jesus we are forgiven. And yes, there are consequences for the actions that we make, but it is not necessarily God punishing us for what we have done. Jesus has taken the punishment. God disciplines, 
to bring us back to fellowship with him. We know that when the scriptures, we get to 2 Kings chapter 1, the Bible says that David never once disciplined his son Adonijah. It could be that David didn't discipline any of his children. I happen to think that had a more, more bearing on those sons than David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Going a lifetime with a father who never once corrected you? No discipline whatsoever? I think that would make more of a negative impact on a young man's life than a father sinning, confessing, and being restored to fellowship to God. So I just want to make some points here in wrapping this up. Despising the word of God is despising God. The connection between God and his word is absolutely inseparable. We despise God and his word when we sin. Why is that? Because God always provides a way of escape. We don't have to sin. And so when we do sin, we are despising God, who is our deliverer from sin. We choose sin over God. And that is despising God. What is this that this child continuing to live would give occasion for the enemies of Israel to blaspheme? I think it has to do that God, first of all, is jealous for his name. And he wants, above all, those who are his people to represent his name well. And when we don't, they don't just mock us, they mock God. And when David sinned in this way, they, just, they weren't just laughing at David, mocking, oh, the holy man who sings all these great songs. They mock God. And so for God to, to, have, to give no discipline, no consequence for sin, only opens up the door for blasphemy all the more. Discipline begins with the household of God, the author of Hebrews says. Maybe we can put it this way. The understanding of grace that says there are no consequences and we should treat people as though there are never any consequences. Just accept everybody and there are no consequences for anything. That kind of cheap grace blasphemes God. And God will defend his name. The grace of God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is not cheap. And it would seem for God to allow no consequences for what David has done, though David is forgiven, would give opportunity for that God to be blasphemed through what the world understands is a grace that has no value. Sadly, the world understands that better than we do sometimes. David was truly repentant. And it had nothing to do with his emotions. 
I believe, and I'm stealing this from another writer, I appreciated what he had to say, that we can see true repentance when there is that, this kind of confrontation and there is open, unguarded admission of sin. When there is, secondly, the desire to make a complete break from sin. Third, the spirit will be broken and humble. There will not be defensiveness, no anger, no bitterness, no pride. And when God brings that kind of conviction and repentance to a person's heart, you know, you really don't care if anybody else knows because you have stood naked before God and you have come undone before God. What can anybody else do? And there will be a claiming of God's forgiveness and reinstatement. And I can't overemphasize that too much. Because God doesn't have us just wallow in the misery of what we have done. As David says in one of the Psalms, He has lifted me from the miry pit and set my feet on the rock. And that's what God does. We can't change our history. But we live in the present reality of the grace of God, the forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we go, yes, that is what I did, but that is not what I am today by the grace of God. And we don't continue to allow ourselves to be falsely accused by that liar, the accuser of the brethren, Satan. We don't put ourselves under the condemnation of the enemy. The spirit convicts, but he does not condemn. And we praise God and thank God that we are fully restored. Quickly, just two more brief points. Forgiven men may still have to reap what they've sown. This is not God's punishment. We will never bear the punishment for our sin. It is God's discipline. And finally, and maybe most important, I hope when we read a passage of Scripture like this and we hear those words, you are the man. We're not looking around at somebody else and wondering if they're getting the message. But we understand that God is speaking to us. I am the man. You are the man. And we live there, coming to Jesus, clear confession, calling it what God calls it, and thanking him and taking it to the bank. We are forgiven. And we are restored. And because Jesus, God, is righteous, we can be cleansed and have been of all unrighteousness. His convicting ministry is not meant to crush us. It's meant to restore us. And there is absolute restoration because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'll close us in prayer. 
Thank you, Father, for what you were willing to do for us. For demonstrating your love for us and giving your son to die for us. You don't hold it over us, God, and beat us up with what it cost you. You just simply say, come, believe, receive, and you shall be cleansed. We thank you that in Jesus, Lord, all our sin has been paid for. We are forgiven. And we need now, Lord, as great as our sin may be, we need now only come to you to have our feet washed. And I pray, Father, that as your spirit puts his finger on the areas of our lives that are not unpleasing to you, that we would not despise you or your word, that we would give our humble agreement. It is sin. It is evil. And turn from it. Turn to you, thanking you that you cleanse and bring us into restored fellowship. I pray, O God, that as David was grieved more than anything, over broken fellowship with you. As your son, Lord, dreaded that break of fellowship more than anything else, that we too, God, would absolutely, with all our being, hate the thought of being in a broken state of fellowship with you that we would quickly, God, turn back and be restored. And that our lives would be lights for Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your loving grace. And again, for the blood of Christ, which takes away all our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.